We're continuing tonight our study through our overall theme of Christ in the Old Testament, and we're breaking our study into three segments. One we've covered completely, which are Old Testament prophecies of the coming of Christ, and we're currently involved in the second section, which are Christophanies, or Old Testament appearances of Christ, and then still ahead of us, we've got a, uh, an, a long section, actually, um, which will cover all of the uh, types and shadows, and we may not cover every single one, but we're going to try to tackle at least the most important ones throughout the Old Testament. So for our study in Christophanies, we're working on a, a definition here. I'll read it once again. should be in your notes, but uh, just for the sake of those who are listening, uh, I'm defining, and this is my own working definition, I'm defining Christophanies as in a Christophany, the Lord appeared in one location in an actual, visible, definite way. Uh, they are not permanent or lasting appearances, but temporary to that moment and circumstance of history. Christophanies are not an incarnation, meaning that the Lord does not become a man or, uh, in the case of some of the appearances, an angel but rather a present, a, a temporary presentation in a particular format. He appears as a human or an angel in these appearances, but did not become human or angel. He temporarily took the form, but not the nature of either man or angel. All right, so uh, in our most recent study, what we did was we finished all of the Christophanies in the book of Genesis, excuse me, yes, in the book of Genesis, and there are uh, as you'll notice uh, from the notes, and that's just the second portion of our study, but uh, so many just in the book of Genesis alone. And for tonight, we're going to tackle the Christophanies in the book of Exodus. We won't cover all of them. There's not as many in Exodus as there are in Genesis, but um, more than we can cover in one specific study. And for our last study, we tackled the very first Christophany and Exodus, which was in chapter 3, the famous burning bush appearance of the angel of the Lord to Moses as he called Moses to uh, serve him in the particular assignment that he gave to Moses. All right, so that brings us up to our next one, which is in chapter 4. This is a super interesting um, Christophany. It's, uh, it's one of the more mysterious appearances of the Lord in the Old Testament, and we'll start in ver- of chapter 4, we'll start in verse uh, 19. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. All of that being a, uh, a word that the Lord uh, assigns to Moses to deliver to Pharaoh. Then in verse 24, at a lodging place along the way. So now 
This is the journey of Moses and his family from Midian, where he had been living for 40 years on the backside of the desert, where he had married and now has children, has a minimum of two sons. On the journey back, he finds a lodging place to stay the night. And at that lodging place on the way, in verse 24, the mysterious part uh, occurs, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That's the Lord met Moses and sought to put Moses to death. Then Zipporah, that's the wife of Moses, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. That means in verse 26, So the Lord let Moses alone. It was then that she said, the wife, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right, so um, this one is, in my opinion, this, this event, in my opinion, is a Christophany, but it's somewhat debated among uh, theologians because there's not super clear description identifying it as, as a Christophany. Really, the only the only wording in the passage that points to it being a a Christophany is found in this phrasing. On the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Now, it is possible that the Lord simply spiritually met him, but I believe it's meant to be read, and I think the the clear implication of of the description is that the Lord, in a sense, stood in the pathway of Moses and prevented him from continuing his journey to Egypt any further. Now, the mystery behind it all is that the story st- starts exactly as we would expect it. The Lord is, has called Moses to go back to Egypt at the beginning of the portion I began to read, starting in verse 19. And he gives him clear instructions about what to do once he gets to Egypt. And uh, he even gives him a very specific message to deliver to Pharaoh. And then on the journey, as they reach this lodging place, the Lord is suddenly standing directly in the path of Moses and uh, preventing him from going any further. And not just in a way of, all right, Moses, I'm stopping you from going any further. You're here, but you won't go any further than this. He actually in this uh, very mysterious description, he, it says, um, and I'm looking here at verse uh, 24, the Lord met him and not just met him, but sought to put him to death. Now, to me, this is mysterious because whenever the Lord's actions are described in scripture, they very rarely are described as the Lord attempting to do something. Meaning, whenever the Lord decides to do whatever it is that the Lord wants to do, what does the Lord usually do when he desires to do something? He does it. He accomplishes whatever he desires to do. Why? Because the Lord has greater strength, greater power, greater ability than any other being in existence. That's, that's of course, part of our understanding of the very definition of God. It's not the only thing that defines God, but one of the things that does define him is he is 
omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful. So there is no one that could prevent him from doing what he wants to do. So the mystery is, why does the passage describe the Lord as seeking to do something as opposed to just simply doing it? If the Lord intended to kill Moses, why doesn't he just kill him rather than describe it in verse 24 as the Lord met him and sought to put him to death? I think we're meant to understand it through the perspective of Moses, what he's going through, what he's experiencing in this moment. At this point in the story, Moses is silent. And so we're, we're, we're needing to read the story as if we were in his circumstance and try to understand it from that perspective. Um, clearly, if the Lord actually intended to kill Moses, Moses would be dead. And there's you know, no disputing that. If the Lord wanted to kill him, the Lord would kill him. So why, why is he described as seeking to kill Moses? The idea is that the Lord doesn't really want to kill Moses, but there is an issue that's going on with Moses that unless that issue is resolved before he takes another step on his journey back to Egypt, he will not be able to go another step beyond this. The Lord is, in a sense, then, holding Moses accountable to a standard. And unless that standard is met, Moses will not be able to finish his journey. His journey will end right there at that lodging place. Now we're left to question, well, wait a second, I thought, I thought God called Moses to go to Egypt. I thought he had this, this great assignment. I thought he was given this special message and this special work to accomplish there. And all of that is absolutely true. But what's also true along with it is the Lord will not allow Moses to fulfill that assignment unless Moses qualifies according to the standard that the Lord is holding him accountable to in this circumstance. So what is the standard that he's being held accountable to? And why is it that the Lord is looking at it from a human perspective, seeking to kill Moses in this situation. Well, the only, the only thing that we can attach this to is what happens next in the story, which is Moses goes into passive mode at this point. Things are happening to him. He's not actively engaged in any of this. We don't know exactly what Moses is experiencing, but he is from our perspective, he is dying in this situation. And so he is not able to resolve what should have been resolved before this moment. And at that point, his wife goes into active mode and she fulfills for Moses what Moses had been responsible in the eyes of the Lord to accomplish before this moment. And that is what? What does Zipporah, his wife, do? She takes a flint, which is basically a, a stone knife, and she circumcises his son. Now, we know there's a minimum of two sons, and ancient Hebrew history tells us at this moment that Moses had two sons. Obviously, one is older than the other. They were not twins. They were not born at the same moment. And one of the sons apparently had already been circumcised, and the second son had apparently not been circumcised because Zipporah knows immediately what's wrong in the circumstance. God doesn't speak to Zipporah in this situation directly, and Moses does not speak to Zipporah in this situation, 
But somehow, inherently, Zipporah knows, as Moses is dying in front of her, that the problem in this circumstance is what Moses has left undone, which is the circumcision, most likely, of his younger son in this situation. And so what happens is she springs into action. She takes the stone knife. She circumcises the younger son. And at that point, as soon as she circumcises the younger son, then we see this response from the Lord in verse 26. So he, the Lord, left him, Moses, alone. Meaning, it's as if God was squeezing the life out of Moses in this circumstance. And as soon as the younger son is circumcised, God relinquishes his grip on Moses and Moses is no longer dying. Moses begins to recover from that moment. And we have only hints as to why did this story unfold in this way. I don't want to get too far afield from the focus on the Christophany here to explain uh, what's going on. But in essence, I think what we can derive from the story is that uh, Moses knew better. Moses knew that his son should have been circumcised. He was a son of the covenant and was fully aware, going all the way back to the beginnings of the covenant itself in the days of Abraham, that all firstborn and successive sons uh, in covenant families were required to be circumcised. And um, he had done so with his first so- firstborn son, but had failed to do so with his second son. And in this situation, he had not been faithful to covenant requirement. And apparently, Zipporah was the reason why he had failed to circumcise his second son. Not justifying Moses' actions, but in this circumstance, most likely what had happened is that Moses had placed pleasing his wife above pleasing the Lord. And she was not happy about the situation, so much so that even though she knew that that was what the Lord was requiring and she sprung into action and she actually carried out the circumcision, uh, she did so with an attitude and with this, um, with this declaration from her own lips, which came, of course, from her heart. And she kind of spits it out toward Moses in this situation, in a sense, blaming him for the circumstance. Surely uh, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And um, does that while uh, doing this action in verse 25, Then Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched the feet of Moses with it. Meaning she was laying the responsibility for this circumstance at the feet of Moses and not at her own feet. And so um, what are we to make of this? I think the, the essence of it is that the Lord holds all who are in the covenant with him He holds them accountable to live according to covenant standards, but how much more so those that lead among his people. And so Moses is being held to a high standard of accountability by the Lord because he is about to be sent on this great assignment to be the deliverer of God's people and not just the deliverer of God's people. He's going to be in their early journey through the wilderness. He's going to be the lawgiver. It's through Moses that the Lord is going to reveal his law to his people. So how can he be 
a, an appropriate and qualified lawgiver if he himself is disregarding the law and choosing actively to disobey it just for the sake of peace in his own household. And so the Lord holds him accountable in this situation. So the, for me, the presentation of the Lord, what, how does the Lord present himself in this Christophany? I see him as the upholder of the covenant here. The Lord makes it super clear. So much so that he even appears in a Christophany in order to make it super clear that he is the Lord of the covenant and he is going to not just uphold the covenant on his side, but hold accountable those who are in covenant relationship with him and especially those who lead in the covenant people. And then the purpose I see is the Lord holding Moses accountable to the covenant requirements as I've already described. All right, let's, let's look at the next one, a few chapters deeper into Exodus now in chapter 11 and chapter 12. This one, um, we have to catch one verse in chapter 11 and then the rest of this will be in chapter 12. I'll read chapter 11, verse four. Now Moses is back in Egypt at this point and he's already interacted with Pharaoh and um, he has, by the assignment of the Lord, He has essentially told Pharaoh, if you don't let the people of God go, the Lord is going to bring a sequence of judgments upon you and upon Egypt. And of course, the 10 plagues begin to unfold. And now we're in between plague number nine and the final plague, the the actual deliverance plague, the plague that will push Pharaoh over the edge, uh, which will be the 10th plague. And in chapter 11, let's just read verse four. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. So the wording here that I want us to notice is the Lord speaking to Moses. This is a prophecy. It's, it's a prophecy in an immediate context of the of its fulfillment which is going to take place in the immediate future but nevertheless it's a prophesy the lord prophesying through moses of what he's just about to do and the wording is i the lord i will go out in the midst of egypt all right let's turn over to chapter 12 then and i'll read a section from verse 12 through to verse 23 And again, we're looking for indicators of a Christophany appearance. Now this is is the Lord's description of his actions in this 10th plague, which we know, of course, is the, the night of the Passover. Verse 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel 
On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing, un- you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of the hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentils, the lentil and the two doorposts within the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house, the door of his house until the morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. All right, so what I see happening here is, of course, we know the event, um, the the Passover event, where um, the Lord calls his people to be separated from the judgment that's about to be poured out upon the entire land by celebrating the Passover within their homes and then... uh, and then, in a sense, painting the door frame of the houses in which they're celebrating the Passover with the blood of what later becomes known as the Passover lamb. And the Lord himself is involved in the circumstance by way of describing that he personally is going to pass through the entire land of Egypt. He is going to personally evaluate each house as he passes through the land and he will make a determination in regards to each individual dwelling place in the land as to whether he will enter that house for the purposes of judging the inhabitants of the house or whether he will pass over that house for the purpose of blessing them and making a distinction between them and the Egyptian overlords that were holding them enslaved. So in this circumstance, I see this as the personal presence of the Lord Jesus in a pre-incarnate presentation. And the presentation here is the Lord as both judge and deliverer. He is functioning in two roles, two presentations simultaneously. He is the judge of the Egyptians and he is the deliverer of the Israelites in the same circumstance. And the purpose of this particular uh, Christophany is the Lord judging Pharaoh and Egypt, and at the same time, delivering his people and doing so through the avenue of the, the circumstance of the feast of Passover, but making it clear that his personal presence is involved in the entire circumstance in a way that is greater than any of the nine plagues that had preceded it. The Lord's hand was involved in each one of the 10 plagues, but the Lord's personal presence is now active and engaged in the final and culminating uh, plague, the judgment that is poured out upon Egypt by the Lord that leads immediately to the deliverance or the salvation of his people. 
All right, let's go one chapter deeper and look at the next one. This one is a familiar one to us. We've spent some time studying this before in different studies, different contexts. This is the Christophany that is revealed in the pillar of fire and cloud that leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and ultimately through the wilderness and into later the promised land. We'll start reading from uh, verse 20, and I'll read through the end of chapter 13, of, uh, chapter 13, verse 20 through the end of the chapter. And they moved on from Sukkoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. All right, so we know that the Lord is, in the ultimate spiritual sense, we know that the Lord is everywhere present in all locations, all the time. Uh, we, we call that the omnipresence of the Lord. And again, it, like the omnipotence of the Lord, is one of the distinguish, distinguishing characteristics or attributes that defines deity, that defines the nature of God himself. But... In all of these Christophanies, what we look for is the Lord making it clear that in certain circumstances, he is more present than he is in his, what we would call general omnipresence in all circumstances. And so this is one of those specialized, what we call localized presences of the Lord. And in other passages, this same pillar of fire and cloud is identified as the presence of the angel of the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud. Here, the terminology angel of the Lord is not mentioned, simply the phenomenon that the children of Israel observe. What they see is a pillar, which during the day looks just like a a pillar of smoke. It's called a pillar of cloud, but it just looks like a smoky pillar in the wilderness. And then at night, uh, because of the absence of natural light from the sun, the light that's within that smoke or within that cloud becomes even more clearly evident and it is revealed as a pillar of fire. And as we've learned before, this pillar serves a double purpose. It's a beneficial purpose. It's a purpose of blessing for the people of God. That is during the day, it's a pillar of cloud and it's positioned most always between camp of the children of Israel in daytime hours and the sun, which would ordinarily be beating down upon the camp, this being a, a particularly hot desert area, this wilderness area. And so the Lord, by revealing himself in a pillar of cloud, provides a beneficial shade when it's most needed by his people. And then at night, of course, in the middle of the wilderness, there's other than their, their small little fires that they would have Uh, connected to their personal tents. He is a a pillar of fire, a glory, a glory fire that's shining out from this pillar, which is lighting the entire camp and providing beneficial light for the people of the Lord. Now, uh, what is the presentation? I see a threefold presentation in this pillar of fire and cloud. One is the Lord 
is presenting himself as a guide to his people because what makes uh, what the Lord makes clear here is in verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. So the presence of the Lord in this phenomenon is for the benefit of making clear where the children of Israel should travel next in their journey through the wilderness. They're not following their own instincts in their journey. They are simply every day when it's time to pack up camp and to journey the next leg of their journey, their sole responsibility is to orient themselves to the pillar and simply follow it because it would lift and it would move and they, would, they were called to follow the pillar through the wilderness. And then, of course, this double uh, presentation that I've already mentioned, uh, the Lord is presenting himself as, as gracious or beneficial shade and light, a double blessing for his people, one for the daytime hours and one for the nighttime hours. Uh, what's the purpose? I think the purpose is simply that the Lord makes known his enduring presence with his people throughout their most challenging and difficult journeys in life. And of course, their, this uh, 40-year journey was their most challenging circumstance that they would ever face. And in this circumstance, what we have is, and I've mentioned in the definition that most of the Christophanies are brief and temporary. This is probably the most long-lasting Christophany because this pillar of fire and cloud lasted for minimum how long, as far as we know? 40 years. It was a 40-year journey through the wilderness. And what's clear here at verse, in verse 22 the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. And so you have a 40-year-long Christophany. Um, that's a, a significant length of time. It's probably the longest of all of the Christophanies that we've studied. Nevertheless, even so, it's a relatively brief appearance in the sense that uh, if, you, if you overlay uh, the course of all of history against that brief 40-year time period. It's a moment in history that the Lord is making himself known and present uh, for the benefit of his people. All right, uh, let's look at the next one then. This is um, also involving the pillar of cloud and fire, but in a, in a different kind of circumstance now in chapter 14. So we're just at the beginning of the journey. Uh, this is what we're about to read is just immediately before the crossing of the Red Sea. So the children of Israel have left Egypt. They have journeyed into the very beginning part of the wilderness, but now they have reached the Red Sea and they can go no further because they don't have any boats to cross the sea. And Pharaoh and his chariots are bearing down on them from behind as Pharaoh now has come to regret that he's allowed the children of Israel, his slave labor force, to leave his kingdom, his empire. And so he's coming in order to take his revenge on them. And all of that is uh, involving the Lord's sovereign purposes in terms of what he wants to accomplish with Pharaoh and what he wants to demonstrate to his people for all the generations to follow. But let's pick up as the story unfolds in verse 19. And I'll read through to verse 25. Then the angel of God, who was going before the hosts of Israel, and this is, as I mentioned just a moment ago, 
Um, this is where we know that the pillar of cloud and fire is being referenced here, but now it's being identified as the angel of God. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And of course, that's exactly what unfolds. Israel manages to make it to the far side of the sea into the actual wilderness uh, successfully and safely. And the army of Pharaoh and all of his chariots and warriors are drowned in the Red Sea as the waters of the sea come back down upon them. So what do we've got going here? Um, I see the presentation here as the Lord, as guardian of Israel, and as the warrior who fights for Israel. So in the first portion of the Christophany, which is the night before the crossing, you have Israel camped right at the shore of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army bearing down on them, nothing naturally standing between them and their goal of attacking the Israelites, until the pillar of fire and cloud, which is simply the covering of the angel of God present in the pillar of fire and cloud, moves position and positions himself directly between the camp of Israel and the Egyptian army, and keeping by that positioning the Egyptian army at bay all night long. And then in the morning, uh, the Lord directs through Moses the people to cross the Red Sea. And then once they have crossed, uh, the Lord then apparently, although this isn't specifically mentioned, the Lord at that point apparently lifts the pillar of fire and cloud, allowing the Egyptians now to pursue into the, to the Red Sea after the, um, the Israelites. But as they're pursuing, we have the second portion which is the Lord looking down from the pillar of fire and cloud, seeing the Egyptians and determining to uh, cause their chariots to become stuck or to be, to be um, uh, in a sense, uh, ensnared by the ground underneath the, uh, underneath the chariots. 
and then causes while they're in that position the waters to come back upon them uh, once and for all rescuing the children of Israel from the danger that the Egyptian army presented to them. So uh, first, he's the guardian the night before, um, protecting the camp of his people from the intentions of the Egyptian army. And then the next day, the Lord is described as a warrior. And I get that specific terminology from the very next chapter. Let's turn one chapter further into chapter 15. All of chapter 15 is a wonderful chapter connected to what we just read. It's what is uh, known as the Song of Moses, which is an inspired worship song uh, celebrating the deliverance of the Lord in this circumstance. But I want you to notice the wording in verse 3 as uh, Moses and the people sing this song to the Lord. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is is his name, and that's in relationship to what happens in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. So the Lord presents himself there as not just the guardian of Israel, but the one who fights on behalf of his people and his purposes for them, fighting as a man of war or as a heavenly warrior. And of course, the purpose here is the Lord protecting Israel, while at the same time defeating Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies. Okay, let's look at another one. A couple of chapters later, now in chapter 17. All of these Christophanies are um, amazing and wonderful. Uh, Some of them, though, uh, stand out to me as in terms of like if if you ask me, do you have favorite Christophanies? I have two or three favorites, and this is one of my favorites. Uh, chapter 17, we'll just start reading in verse 1. Uh, we'll read the first seven verses. All the congregation, now they're, they're past the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness. And all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water For the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Uh, those, those two names that were attached to that place are names that mean testing and quarreling, um, because the people tested the Lord rather than trusting in him, and they quarreled with Moses rather than um, in their 
trust in the Lord, uh, trusting the Lord's guidance through the leadership that he had appointed for them. All right, so in the circumstance, clearly um, it's a naturally understandable situation. Uh, They're in a wilderness area. It's a large group of people. Uh, We're talking, you know, approximately uh, by best estimates, some three to seven million people. We don't know exactly how many because we don't know exactly how many children were involved in the actual exodus. But one way or the other, we're not talking about just a, a small group of people. And uh, it's going to become a problem, of course, as they're on the wilderness journey, as we'll see, uh, in terms of how to feed such a large group in the wilderness. There's no supermarkets that they can stop and get supplies. And it's going to be a problem, and it already is at the beginning, because before you get hungry, you're going to be thirsty, especially as you're journeying through a hot wilderness area, even if you have the benefit of shade from the pillar of fire and cloud. Uh, and so the people grow thirsty in the wilderness, and they, they naturally, thinking, are going to question, how in the world are we going to survive out here? We're already thirsty. There's no rivers here in the wilderness. How in the world are we going to, to make it? And uh, they get so upset with Moses that Moses is concerned that they're about to execute him by stoning. So, of course, he goes to the Lord, and the Lord gives him the special instruction, and essentially tells him, without using the theological terminology, uh, don't worry, Moses, I got this covered. I'm going, to, I'm going to present myself in a Christophany here in this situation. But that's exactly what he does. He tells Moses, there's a specific rock here. I'm, I'm going to stand on this rock. And again, this is one of those cases where we understand the Lord's always present, but he is localizing in a special and specific way his presence in all of the locations on the face of planet Earth. For this moment in history, the Lord is going to be more present on that one rock than he is anywhere else in all of creation. And he's going to be present on that rock standing there in order for Moses to do what we would call some prophetic theater. And what we mean by that theologically is not that Moses is just putting on an act, but we mean that the Lord is is acting out something for for the comprehension, the spiritual comprehension of his people. And uh, what he does is the Lord stands on the rock and he orders Moses to take the staff and the, you know, the staff of God that the Lord had given to him and to take the staff and to strike the rock upon which the Lord is standing. And in the striking of the rock, what we have symbolically is that the one who is standing on the rock is being struck by the staff. And as the rock is struck, the Lord promises Moses, and the, the passage doesn't give us the details of what happens next, but what's clearly indicated is the events unfold exactly like the Lord said they would unfold. And so Moses strikes the rock, and when the rock is struck, it splits, and out of the split of the rock comes water, and not just a dribble, but enough water to satisfy the thirst of the entire camp of Israel. A huge amount of water would have had to come out in order to enable millions of Israelites to drink and to be fully satisfied in their journey. Now, there's a very important connection to this. I I think you're probably familiar with it, but let's uh, leave Exodus for just a moment and turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians. As Paul later gives us a 
a theological commentary about this event. We can be confident that he is commenting based upon the inspiration of the Spirit of God. And we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we read from verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. What cloud were the fathers of the Israelites all under? It's the, the pillar of cloud that led them to this point in their journey. And all passed through the sea. What sea did they all pass through? The Red Sea. Even though they, they passed through on dry ground, nevertheless, there's a corridor between the two walls of the sea. And so symbolically, they are passing through the sea, which Paul takes as a, as a symbol of what we understand as baptism because he connects it to all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. What spiritual food did they eat? The manna from heaven, which actually hasn't taken place at the moment yet when we're in in, uh, Exodus 17, but will happen soon after this. And all drank the same spiritual drink. What spiritual drink did they all drink? The water that came from the rock. Because Paul goes on to explain in verse 4, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Now, there's couple of really interesting but super important points that Paul makes in verse 4 that help us in our overall study of all Christophanies, but it's specifically in relationship to this one Christophany in Exodus chapter 17. First of all, he refers to the rock, which in the event the Lord said to Moses what was going to be his connection to the rock, He said, I'm going to go stand on the rock and then you're going to take the staff and strike, not me, but strike the rock. So physically what's happening is Moses is just striking a rock in the wilderness. But spiritually, there's one who is standing on it who is the Lord himself. Christ in his pre-incarnate expression is standing on that rock. And Paul says, and the rock was Christ. Now, let's, we've already clarified this in our definition, our working definition that applies to all these Christophanies. I don't want you to misunderstand, but does this mean that Christ incarnated as a rock for a period of history? Of course not. Christ never became a rock, but the rock was fully identified with Christ meaning it symbolically represents him because he chooses to stand on it. And as the staff strikes the rock, what's essentially happening is the staff is striking the one, spiritually speaking, that's standing upon the rock. So this event in Exodus 17 is, and we'll revisit this when we get to our study of types and shadows. Uh, So it's both a type and shadow of Christ and his work, And it's also a Christophany, both at the same time. So what does the event typify about the personal work of Christ? This is an image in history in advance of the great saving work of Christ in his sacrifice on the cross. The authority of God, which is represented by the staff of God, the authority of God strikes Christ. And in the striking of Christ, 
what comes forth is life-giving water, which is, of course, an image of the outpoured Holy Spirit, the saving work of the Spirit of God in the hearts of each one of his people. Now, the other detail that's in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 10 that we shouldn't overlook or miss is also super interesting to me. And this also tells us that this was a, an extended Christophany as well. Verse 4, I'll read it again. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock. And then this phrase, that followed them. And what does that tell us? They're in a journey. How long does their journey last? 40 years. It's a wilderness journey. How long would they need a special, supernatural, miraculous provision of water for their wilderness journey? They would need a supernatural provision of water for 40 years. I mean, it would be awesome the first day that they're in the wilderness that the Lord would miraculously, and I don't know that Exodus 17 is the very first day they're in the wilderness, but sometime soon after arriving on the other side of the Red Sea, they're in the wilderness. You know how it is. Naturally speaking, human beings can't go for three days or more without drinking, without some significant physical detriment to their health. And especially when it's a hot environment where you are sweating and especially when you are journeying, walking long distances through such a hot and difficult and challenging environment. So the people needed water. So the Lord does a special miracle on that one day. And if that had been the sum and total of the miracle of the Christophany, then where would that have left them for the next 40 years? They would have survived the first couple of days. And then three days later, they, their lives would have been at threat just as much as it was the very first day. And they all would have died at the beginning of their wilderness journey. So Paul describes, and this isn't ever directly mentioned in the Exodus account, but by the inspiration of the Spirit of God, Paul makes this comment, which then opens our eyes to the greater dimensions of this Christophany. And that is, this rock that was struck by Moses wasn't localized in that one place and then limited to that one place. They moved on from there to other places and the rock is back there. They can't go back to that location each time that they need a new drink. And so what does the Lord do for them? He causes the rock to follow them. So every place that they camped, the rock was there. You would think if that was their experience and that, and that's not the sum and total of their experience of the miraculous in their wilderness journey. The Lord did other things for them in the wilderness journey. He provided supernatural food for them. You know, uh, bread from heaven, as, as we'll see. He caused their sandals to not wear out. Um, you know, they're, they're walking for 40 years and their sandals are in as good a shape at the end of their journey as, it, as they were at the beginning of their journey. Things of that miraculous nature are going on on a daily basis. And you would think in that constant experience of the miraculous that there's no way they could veer off. And yet they did over and over again throughout their 40-year journey. But nevertheless, in terms of the Christophany, the implication is this is an extended appearance of the Lord. So he's present in the pillar of fire and cloud every day of their journey. 
and he's present in a spiritual rock that follows them to provide supernatural, miraculous water for them to drink every day of their journey. And you could say, well, how could the Lord be present in both situations? You know, the Lord is capable of doing that. The Lord did that. I don't question it. I just, I just recognize that he makes it clear in both cases how he is uh, present in that circumstance. So the presentation here in terms of the, the rock miracle, um, I see the Lord as presenting himself as the ever-present source of salvation. He's practically speaking on just a natural, practical level. He's the source of their sustained life in their wilderness journey. But of course, this is teaching us about the Lord as the source of the saving drink uh, that we, um, we receive in the gospel. And then the purpose, the Lord providing both practical and spiritual salvation for his people in their circumstance. All right, I think we have just enough time for one more. Let's look over in chapter 19. We're back in Exodus now, not in Corinthians. Exodus 19. And now we've come to, in their journey, we've come to the foot of an appointed mountain in the Sinai wilderness, and this is going to now be re-identified by the children of Israel as Mount Sinai. The whole chapter is worth reading, but for the sake of our time, I'm just going to take two small portions. Uh, The first portion is verses 9 through 11. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, he's telling him this about what he's about to do before it actually happens. Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Then Moses told the words of the, told the, words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, And then this key phrasing here that we should notice for on the, and this is the Lord speaking, describing his own actions in advance. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. All right, now skip down uh, again, just for the sake of our time and start reading in verse 16. On the morning of the third day, the Lord had told Moses, Get the people ready for the next couple of days. On the third day, I'm going to come down on the mountain in this thick cloud. So on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud, which is what the Lord had promised, a thick cloud on the mountain, meaning on the summit of the mountain, the children of Israel camped at the foot of that same mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. Clear clear wording of a, a Christophany meeting that's about to take place. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, 
And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up. All right, so the Lord has been present, not just in a general omnipresence way, but he's been present in a special way in the pillar of fire and cloud that's been leading them through the wilderness. And also now we've added to that the presence of the Lord in the spiritual rock that has followed them. But now the Lord is going to make himself known one additional way in a special appearance. And he's going to do so on the summit of Mount Sinai. The entire camp of Israel will not directly experience it, meaning the Lord is not allowing the whole camp of the people to come up to the summit, but he's called one representative of the people, who is, of course, Moses, to come up and meet him on the summit of the mountain. And so he does so. And what is the presentation of the Lord? I see here the Lord is presenting himself to his people as the Holy One. Uh, The whole wording of uh, get ready for this appearance. You're, you're, you're not going to, even just staying at the foot of the mountain, you're not going to be able to endure this appearance of the Lord unless you first consecrate the entire camp of Israel and all of the people within the camp, set them apart for a special and holy purpose. So the Lord <coughs> is making himself known as the Holy One. And I think the purpose of this particular appearance in this Christophany is The Lord is preparing his people for the revelation of the law, which is about to uh, be revealed. The very next chapter, of course, is chapter 20, which is the first introduction to the people of Israel of what we now call the Ten Commandments, the the, uh, ten special representative words, the symbols in terms of an outline form, I believe, of the entire revelation of all 613 individual laws in the law of Moses all of that being represented in the Ten Commandments. But the Lord is preparing his people by making it clear to them through this special appearance that this is a holy law and must be approached with a consecrated heart perspective as it's received because it is a holy representation of the Lord's own nature and character and purposes for his covenant people. And since they're in covenant relationship with him, we have the biblical principle as of because the Lord is holy, he calls his people to follow him in holiness as well. All right, that brings us to the end of our time tonight. And uh, Lord willing, we will do next study a part two of the Exodus Christophanies We've got another full study of Exodus Christophanies that's ahead of us. And uh, the next study should finish all of the appearances of the Lord that are revealed to us in the book of Exodus. All right, God bless you tonight.